You're listening to the Ear B&B Podcast. Let's tune in to hear what Barry and Bill have to share with us today. Yes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ear B&B Disney Podcast. My name is Barry, and as always, I'm joined by my trusted co-host, Bill. Good evening. We also have Sam, our good friend, uh, who was nice enough to set this all up. And of course, our special guest, let's be honest, the real reason why you're here. He is a former senior show writer, creative director, and show producer for Walt Disney Imagineering, and also a creative uh, director for Universal. Jason Sorrell, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe in layman's terms, what your actual duties were? (laughs) Well, the the writing part of it, uh, which is how I started out, was pretty straightforward. Um, I actually began my career in live entertainment as a writer and then uh, graduated to director eventually. So writing and directing uh, live entertainment of all kinds, uh, character shows, stunt shows, lagoon spectaculars, you know, fireworks spectaculars, um, media events, corporate events, you, you know, you name it, I did it between... Uh, Walt Disney World and uh, Universal Orlando, and then uh, ultimately made the segue uh, over to the attraction side of the business. First at Universal, um, my first major credit was uh, I was the show writer for Jurassic Park, one of the lands at Islands of Adventure, uh, including the the River Adventure. So that was my first e-ticket credit, and it was coincidentally around that time that uh, an opening came about for a show writer at Imagineering, so that e-ticket experience with Islands of Adventure sort of clinched the deal for me. So I went over to WDI, which had been my ultimate dream, or, or one of them. I've had the, the Disney dream, the you know theme park dream, and then also the film and television dream. Uh, so I went over to WDI and spent the next 15 years uh, writing, creative directing, producing. Uh, that's where I started writing uh, some of my books. Uh, the last major thing I worked on was uh, a, a version of Star Wars Land prior to Galaxy's Edge. Uh, and then that was ultimately, um, it, it ultimately evolved into Galaxy's Edge, which of course features uh, uh, an original planet and all new storytelling that centers around the new films. Uh, and it was around that time that I made the transition over to Universal Creative, uh, mostly because they were giving me the opportunity to sort of graduate from writing to creative direction. And the best way to describe that is sort of like the director of a movie. You're basically the creative lead of a project and sort of conducting the orchestra of all the other disciplines, sort of head cheerleader uh, for a given project. And uh, my first project over there was Race Through New York, starring Jimmy Fallon, which is coming up on its fourth birthday. Uh, And then within a year or two, um, I... uh, joined the Beijing project where I got to be creative director for the whole park. So that kind of uh, convinced me that I'd made the right move because uh, it's those assignments are few and far between. So that uh, resort is set to open, I believe, in April or May. And uh, so I feel like a, a proud parent uh, from a distance, given everything that's been going on. Uh, but I'm very excited. And then I uh, was also creative director of Epic Universe for a year or so, year, year and a half. Uh, before that project was set aside temporarily, uh, also due to current conditions. So it's uh, it's been quite the journey, but uh, over the course of 30 years, uh, writing and directing for one of those two companies, going back and forth, 
Uh, and now I'm currently independent after uh, some of the pandemic-related uh, reductions at, at all of uh, the companies in the business. Uh, but I've been keeping busy independently since then, uh, and I have a lot of things on all four burners. So hopefully well, I'll have some exciting things to announce uh, in the near future here. That's fantastic. So uh, what what was your first exposure to Disney itself? And did you go to the parks a lot when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was uh, a Walt Disney World kid. I grew up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, or as we like to call it, the Versailles of the Midwest. It's lovely. <laughs> um, so I, it I'm a, from Cincinnati, and we, we, we call it something a little different down here. <laughs> I went to Miami. I know how you people are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By you people, I mean people from Cincinnati. Uh, but you have hair, so you have that going for you. No, for now, anyway. <laughs> Don't look a gift horse in the mountain. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, my first trip to the parks was uh, at age five in 1975. So now everyone will be doing the, the math. Um, and uh, for us, it was we were fortunate in that our parents took us uh, almost uh, every year. So uh, got to see, you know, every, every, I feel like every generation gets something different that's special. And uh for my generation and being, uh, you know, from this side of the country, I feel really privileged to have grown up with the Walt Disney World of the 70s and 80s in particular. You know, the Magic Kingdom and the early days of Walt Disney World, Epcot in its heyday. Uh, I was there uh, for the for my college program in the summer of 89 when Pleasure Island and Disney MGM Studios and uh, Maelstrom and Norway and the Grand Floridian were all opening up Typhoon Lagoon. So really got to experience some exciting times uh, in Walt Disney World history. And then beyond that, of course, grew up like uh, a lot of us with the Sunday night show uh, and, of course, all of the movies. And, and uh, even though I grew up during kind of a dark period of, of Disney animation, you always had the reissues, uh, the re-releases. So got to see all of Walt's classics in the theater, uh, along with a lot of the classic live action films that were being re-released. So really a, a classic traditional Disney childhood, which of course, you know, led to a lot of my passions in my life. That's incredible. Now, now you mentioned uh, uh, that you did the college program. Uh, yeah. You mentioned uh, that uh, you, you were writer director. How did those two kind of bridge? Did you go right from college into working at Disney or was it were there other things in between? I guess how to get started is the easiest it was way. To a, well, that's an interesting transition because for the longest time, uh, I assumed I was going to go into the movies. So the plan had been film school. And I spent uh, ninth grade actually in California, in Los Angeles, because my dad had uh, gotten a new job out there. So I thought, oh, this is great. I'll you know finish up high school. You know, it was a little traumatic leaving school in eighth, ninth grade, you know, when, when you have all your friends and you're about to go into the home stretch. But uh, I looked at the bright side and thought, well, you know, three years of high school and I'm going to go to UCLA. Well, it turned out uh, my entire family, but particularly my parents, weren't really wild about L.A., so they wound up moving us back to Cleveland for 10th grade. Right as I was getting adjusted to life on the West Coast, we moved back. Um, but I thought, same thing, you know, I'll, I'll just finish up high school here with all of my friends and then go back to UCLA. But what happened in the interim... Uh, actually a couple of years previously, but this was the heyday of Michael Eisner and Frank Wells and the transformation of the Walt Disney Company. And it had really a kind of a hypnotic effect on me to the point where I thought, 
okay, I still want to be in entertainment, but I'm so inspired by these two guys, I want to run something. So I scrapped the notion of going to film school, and that was when I uh, applied and went to Miami of Ohio, which is uh, uh, was and is one of the best business schools in the state. It's considered you know one of the public Ivies. So I thought, okay, I'm on my way. I'll do that. And then in the summer of my freshman year, I did the college program. Couldn't get down there fast enough. So literally, you know, first summer of college, went down and did it. I was a Jungle Cruise skipper. So that was my first Disney job. So it's a great first Disney job, and it's a great first themed entertainment job. Uh, And uh, took all of their seminars. I got a doctorate degree in studio production. Uh, Can't recommend the college program highly enough, you know, for somebody to really get a taste of, Walt Disney World or Disneyland and, and see how the, the parks actually operate. Then the next summer, I went back to Jungle, but within, I think, a couple of weeks, I auditioned for entertainment and got cast as Pluto at Epcot. Spoiler alert, I hope there are no small children listening. Uh, and that was kind of the, the magical, transformational summer for me. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think I had the greatest adjustment to college you know it wasn't animal house for me it was like you know i want to go home every weekend and watch movies you know just you know typical nerd stuff but that second summer in florida i felt like i really found my niche and uh, a circle of friends and i thought you know i had grown up reading about walt and his company and uh, this uh, their culture of promoting from within and cross-pollinating people so I thought, all right, I'm going to transfer from Miami to the University of Central Florida, you know, finish up my degree down in Florida, but work at Disney at the same time. And again, that turned out to be the greatest thing I could have done because I think within weeks of moving down here full time, uh, a friend of mine at Epcot Entertainment came up to me and said, hey, you seem to be a pretty good writer. I think it's because I'd done some departmental newsletters and I, I, I wrote up all of these David Letterman style top 10 lists that I would post in the rehearsal room every morning. He said, I have an idea for a character Christmas show. Would you want to work on it with me? Now, being a 20 year old idiot, you know, I didn't know that hourly Plutos didn't write and present Christmas shows. You know, so we're both like, yeah, let's do this. And uh, we actually recruited uh, a goofy uh, who would go on to work for Walt Disney Feature Animation to do a piece of concept art for us. And somehow we pitched it and it got approved all the way up through the process uh, to where they said, we're going to do this. And they they brought me in and said, we're going to send you over to Creative Entertainment. You're going to work with them to get it done. And then your partner is going to take over when it comes back to the park to implement it. So they kind of uh, divide and conquer type thing. So at 20 years old, 21 years old, I found myself at Creative Entertainment and the show director who was uh, a Disney legend in his own right. His, his name was George Kohler, very sweet man, longtime Disney director. He sat me down and he said, OK, you're basically going to do my job, but you're not going to get credit for it. Again, being a 21 year old idiot, I'm like, why not? And he said, because you're a 21 year old nebish, which is Jewish for, for nobody. And he said it in a sweet way. He wasn't trying to be a jerk. He just could not have been more delightful. Uh, He he said, but my advice to you is, you know, uh, keep your eyes and ears open. And by the end of this, you will have a master's degree in Disney entertainment. That's exactly what happens. So flash forward to Christmas time. I'm 21 years old, standing out on the World Showcase promenade, listening to Mickey and Minnie and Goofy say things that I wrote. And that was when... I had this sort of Oprah moment where I realized you, you don't want to be Eisner or Wells, you know, 
you want to be Walt or Spielberg or Lucas. So uh, I channeled all of my energy at that point into creative pursuits, uh, including uh, quite a few more of those sort of extracurricular activities. And uh, I wound up transferring over to what was then Disney MGM Studios. And a couple of my ideas for shows happened to involve the tram tour. So they said, well, we love the stuff you're coming up with, but it involves a ride. So you're going to have to go talk to Imagineering. And of course, you know, my eyes just bugged right out of my head. Uh, and I'm like, well, th that's what I want to do. You know, this is amazing. I'm actually going to get to go in the building and talk with them. Well, as fate had it, uh, a couple of months prior to that, at the Walt Disney World 20th anniversary press event, uh, I was lucky enough to score a credential. So I just put on nice clothes and was just kind of walking around gawking at everybody. But I met Marty Sklar, who was uh, the head of Imagineering at the time, uh, hired right out of UCLA by Walt. And I'll never forget this. He was standing by himself in the Muppet Courtyard, you know, right by the Miss Piggy Fountain. And I went up to him and, I, you know, it's like Beaver Cleaver in the baseball hat coming up going, hi, Mr. Sklar. You know, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, my name's Jason. I'm a writer. And I just had this show produced. And I want to be an Imagineer. And he turns to him and he goes, I'll tell you what you do, kid. You go talk to Mike West. He has an office here in Florida. You tell him I sent you. And it was literally like talking to the Godfather, like Don Corleone. So uh, so I went in and I talked to this guy, Mike West, who had uh, opened the studio as part of the Imagineering team. Uh, and his opening words to me were literally, the only reason you're sitting in that chair is because Marty told me I had to talk to you. <laughs> So uh, six or nine months later, I go to Imagineering with my little, you know, studio tour ideas to have a musical based on Encino Man and later Sister Act to put on the tram tour. And uh, who's sitting there but Mike West? And he's like, you know, you again. <laughs> so um, he looked at my ideas and he said, uh, well, what you have here is it's cute. You have a cute moment. But at Disney, we tell stories. We don't just present moments. So we need to turn this into a story, even though it's small and fast, but something with a beginning, a middle, and an end. So uh, he helped me uh, brainstorm how, would, how we would frame up these little musical moments and turn them more into more of a vignette, a story that unfolded even on, uh, in under a minute as the tram is going by. And that alone taught me lessons that I carry to this day, where uh, no matter what you're working on, no matter how big or how small, even it, it could be a food cart in, in one of the lands and one of the parks, everything tells a story and everything can have a beginning, a middle and an end. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be Shakespeare in the park you know, with high stakes, but it did really cement that core lesson of what Disney storytelling is and, and by extension uh, storytelling in a themed environment should be. So uh, he basically then said, you know, I think I really think you need to go out and get some more experience. And, and I thought, oh, man, this is it. You know, my run is over and I'm you know, 22. Uh, and it was around that time that I ran into a fellow character who said, I know the producer of Halloween Horror Nights over at Universal. I'll introduce you to her. And uh, because Universal was young and lean and mean at the time they felt comfortable taking a chance on somebody like me. Because even though I was still in college, uh, I was 24 by that point, if you looked at my resume with all this extracurricular stuff, it actually looked like I knew what I was doing. So they took a chance on me. It worked out. And I spent the next five years there working on Halloween Horror Nights, 
Um, I was probably best known for Bill and Ted's excellent Halloween adventure, uh, which went on to become an institution. I like to think that we were a big part of that in the early days, sort of setting the template for what it would be. I wrote the Day in the Park with Barney show that ran for 25 years before closing just a week or two ago. I was just yep. told. Uh-huh. I didn't even get a chance to say goodbye uh, to, the, <laughs> to the purple guy. Um, and then it was in the course of those five years that I transitioned over to what would become Universal Creative. But at the time, it was known uh, under the much sexier name of Planning and Development. Because <laughs> that's what you want on a polo shirt and a, and a construction. Uh, oh, yeah, that's hot. Yeah. <laughs> it's hot, hot stuff. <laughs> um, and then, like I said, uh, before Islands even opened, uh, I wound up transitioning back to Imagineering because I really had the experience by that point. And when that uh, took the kind of frosting on the cake at, at that point was, you know, there was an opening for a show writer. So I go in for the interview. Who do you think they sent me down to interview with? Mike West. <laughs> it's like you yeah. again. And he looks at my resume and he said, well, I'll be damned. Five years ago, I told you to go out and get more experience. And that's exactly what you did. Welcome home. <laughs> and that that's- set up the next 15 years at WDI. That's incredible. Now, now uh, it, it we do our homework here, and you you, you kind of gave us a cliff notes of uh, one of your early books uh, uh, there a little bit with uh, uh, all of the, uh, the the screenplay by Disney. Um, that's that's uh, that's incredible. Thank you. That yeah, it's it's interesting because I get more positive feedback about that book, even though I don't think initially it did very well. Than any of the others, because I've had a, any number of writers come up to me and say that book really helped me out. It took screenwriting principles and really made them accessible. Because when I wrote that, uh, what was interesting was that book was not my idea. You know, I, I did my Haunted Mansion book, and then I was about to embark on the Pirates book. But in between, my editor said, "Okay, you know, Pirates, we want to wait. Uh, we're gonna, we want it to come out closer to the next movie, whatever it was." They said, so in the meantime, uh, we, we would like you to do uh, one of our ideas, if that's okay, because they didn't know if I just wanted to stick to my own stuff or whatever. And I said, no, no, that's great. I'm just happy to be doing anything. And, and she said, well, you can do one of two things and you can pick. And she pitched screenplay by Disney. And then the other one was a book on Home on the Range, <laughs> so, which was an animated feature that came out in 2004. I, uh, to paraphrase Indiana Jones, I chose wisely. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. I, although I do remember Home on the Range. Um, do I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you? It's funny. Is the audience? No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's at least one person <laughs> who remembers that. Maybe not a lot, but at least one well, person. To that person, I say, enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> So you told us that incredible story about Marty, and you should already know this about me. I love hearing stories about the legends. Do you have any other legends that you got to work with or any other like fun memories? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, that became the main reason to, uh, to do those books. Uh, you know, First of all, The Haunted Mansion came about simply because I wanted to read it, and it didn't exist. Uh, so I, I stuck my head in our vice president's office and said, how do we go about doing a book? He's like, I don't know, email Marty. So I'm like, all right. <laughs> you know, and then I, so I went through this whole thing with Marty and the Haunted Mansion book came about. 
But from then on, uh, what I quickly discovered was the main reason to do those books was the, the life experience, the time that I got to spend with Exitensio, Harriet Burns, Alice Davis, Blaine Gibson, you know, you name it. Uh, I was third, was and am, you know, third generation Imagineering. Mike West, you know, my mentor was second generation, which meant when, when he came in, in in the early 80s, uh, and some of the guys that came in in the 70s, they were working with the original Imagineers that, that Walt handpicked from the studio. So by the time you get to third generation, there were a few of them around. I mean, I worked with John Hench. Marty was still running the place. You know, Bob Gurr would run around every once in a while in Orlando Ferrante. But for the most part, they were all retired. But the natives are getting restless in the other room. Another satisfied customer. Excuse me. <laughs> My admin assistant is having trouble. <laughs> um, so for me, the books gave me the opportunity to sort of metaphorically sit at the feet of the masters. And the time that I got to spend with them and uh, really become friends with them was priceless. And uh, in particular, I remember sitting in Exitensio's living room as he took about 20 minutes to tell me the story about what it was like at WED the day Walt passed away. And he just got this far off look in his face. His eyes welled up with tears. And and, and then I started like crying. And, and that was for the Pirates book. And I remember in particular saying, okay, I know the, the book's about pirates, but I really want to capture for people what it had to be like on that horrible, horrible day. Um, and coincidentally, uh, when the book finally came out and I was doing a signing, I had these two nice ladies come up to me and say, I have a bone to pick with you. And I'm like, oh, God, what did I do? Well, we bought your book yesterday and read it in the hotel, and we spent 25 minutes crying our eyes out uh, over that piece about Walt passing away. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> You're happy? And I'm like, yes, I am. That's what I was hoping to yeah. do for you. Um, yeah, so an afternoon with X and hanging out uh, by his swimming pool with his tombstone, you know, planted in the shrubs right next to the pool and just picking up Marty and taking him for lunch and uh, uh, going out to Harriet Burns' house in, in Santa Barbara and meeting her there at 10 in the morning. She opens the door, dressed to the nines, like she like she's in an episode of Mad Men. It's nine in the morning. She is gonna, she's looking better than I'm going to look all day <laughs> for the rest of my life. Uh, and just, you know, the time that I got to, to spend with them uh, it was just absolutely priceless. And the, the thing that really comes to mind was um, when I finally sent the finished Pirates book out to X, he called to say thank you. And this was uh, this was at a time where, you know, uh, I, I hadn't really had a cell phone that long. You know, I was still you know, getting used to it and everything. So I'm driving home. I'm about to get on I-4, which is a dangerous proposition here in town. Mm-hmm. And my cell phone goes off and I look down and it says Exitensio. That in and of itself is a mind-blowing occurrence you know because you're just like he's in my phone x is in my phone and he's calling me i I can't even believe he knows who i am much less you know he's calling me so i answered the phone i'm like hey x and he's like jason i gotta tell you i just got the pirates book thank you so much i i read the whole thing it's just so wonderful and and you know we never really got a lot of attention for the work we did and 
and I, I feel like you're my my personal publicist, you know. And I'm just like, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, oh my gosh, and I, yeah, I'm just trying to keep it together. And I'm like, oh well, thank you, X. Thank you for taking the time, and thanks for everything that you've done for all of us, for my childhood, influencing my life. I'm a writer like you. And at the end of the call, uh, he was saying, well, thank you. And it, there's a long pause. And then he goes, Jason, you're a good boy. And I just burst into tears and almost <laughs> broke into a lamppost. You know, because it was just getting that sort of affirmation you know, from a true, not only legend, but hero. And then uh, another story that comes to mind is when I got to, it, it's interesting, you held up screenplay by Disney because for that one, I got to spend uh, quite a bit of time with Roy E. Disney because uh, he was the heading up animation at the time. And when I went to the studio to talk to him, it was during the period of time that he co- coincidentally occupied Walt's office. So, you know, it's already like, you know, you're, you're, you're going up to the principal's office and intellectually, you know what this space was. Right. So they, you know, it's, you're sitting there in the waiting room and, and uh, an assistant says, Roy, we'll see you now. And I, I'm just walking down that, that little uh, hallway that leads to the, to the first office. And he's sitting there behind the desk and it, it's roughly in the, in the same place where Walt's desk was. And, you know, they do look similar oh, you know, yeah. with the mustache and just some of the facial features. And I literally had a sitcom moment. I, I held out my hand. It was shaking a little. And I go, good afternoon, Mr. Disney. And he gets up and he goes, my name's Roy. And I go, yes, Mr. Disney. <laughs> something you would expect on, on TV. Right? Uh-huh. Unbelievable. And, oh, that's uh, incredible. Yeah, there, there were a lot, of, a lot of things like that. Yeah, that's amazing stuff. Uh, speaking of uh, the book, the 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 haunted mansion. Is it safe to say that the haunted mansion is your favorite attraction? It's funny. I usually uh, that's the side I come down on. I vacillate between mansion and pirates, like a lot of people do. So sometimes it depends on my mood. I mean, they're both just sort of unequivocal masterpieces. But I think just because of my own personal love of ghost stories and horror movies and, and just the supernatural in general. I think Haunted Mansion tends to get the nod more often than not, but it's neck and neck with pirates at any given moment. Well, I, I, I bought the book over the weekend and I read it probably in about 10 minutes. I cannot recommend this book enough because let me tell you. Well, it I'm, took long enough to buy yeah. it. And I was <laughs> I, yeah, no. He got I, it over the weekend. Well, well, I saw I saw 130 pages, and I'm a moron. I don't like to read, but but thankfully, there's. I put in a lot of pictures, and I thought one day Barry's going to consider picking this up, and I don't want him to be intimidated. Thankfully, well, all I was missing was big words. The, the words are a little small, but I will try no. to get him to do a large print edition for it, just for you, Barry. Sorry, I would say my favorite part of the book is that is the picture in the beginning with with Marty. I like started to sob when I was looking at it. Yeah, they got a real kick out of that too, you know, being able to, you know, because for Marty, a lot of things like that, not that he needed my book for this, but little touches like that for Marty are kind of like a victory lap, you know, because it's just, he was there for the origin of all of this stuff. And, you know, so he got to put on the costume and and go down to Disneyland and and take the picture with uh, Tom Fitzgerald, who was his second in command mm-hmm. at the time. And for Tom, it was a big deal because he actually 
started at the mansion. So, you know, for me, it was Jungle Cruise Skipper, but Tom started at the mansion. So that was all that always held a very special place uh, in his heart as well. They both wrote the foreword for that, too, yes. right? Yep. Kind of a generational thing, because at, at that time, uh, you know, Marty was sort of grooming the next generation to take over. So they, they both shared the foreword. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned uh, uh, Jungle Cruise a couple of times now and, and how you got your start there. I don't know. Did you hear the news that came out today that they are uh, updating uh, the ride to give to give it like a full story instead of a lot of snapshots like it's been in the past? Like you've got this and you've got the backside of water and you, you know, the, the guy getting hit with the horn and all of that. Uh, did did you see that? And, and are, are you excited to see uh, what they're going to do with it? Uh, I'm excited uh, just over the fact that the Jungle Cruise is still here, you know, decades later, and that they care enough about it to inject that kind of new magic uh, into it. Yeah. So anything that that preserves and protects the Jungle Cruise is is okay in my book. And uh, regarding the the story element, uh, that's actually not terribly dissimilar to the situations uh, you'd have with Haunted Mansion or Pirates in, in that they both have stories, but they're not, again, definitive, you know, experience stories. You know, the, there's that great anecdote with, uh, with Walt uh, re- regarding um, kind of that central town part of Pirates where uh, during the mock-up they found that it was kind of difficult to understand a lot of what was going on and the dialogue would overlap and Exitensio was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And Walt was like, no, 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 this is great. You know how when you go to a cocktail party and you'll just kind of drift from one little pocket of conversation to the next, that's what this is like. You know, so uh, during that era, uh, that was the way the attractions were created. And, And unless it was something like one of the Fantasyland Dark Rides where you were sort of re-experiencing a story you already knew pretty well, uh, that was the style. And then it evolved over the years into something like Splash Mountain, which has a very definite three-act structure and a story that you can follow. So it's uh, it's not surprising that they might take something like Jungle, which has all of this great raw material to work with, and sort of build a story around it. As long as they keep the the corny jokes and the ability to safely improvise. <laughs> Which man, if you get, if you get the right, uh, 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 captain, oh boy, that, that really makes it. Um, now, now, you know, in talking about the rides, uh, you know, I, I, you know, all of the things that we see and all of the things that we hear, uh, really are kind of at the forefront, but how, how important it, when you're designing that stuff, do you find the other senses, you know, like uh, uh, on some of the rides, you know, the smells uh, uh, really bring people home and, and different things. Like, what, you know, how, how do you guys take all of that into consideration when you're doing? Well, in some cases, uh, the utilization of the other senses is obvious uh, uh, to the point uh, when it's kind of a, a funny thing to open a meeting with. But during my first meeting with Jimmy Fallon on the Jimmy Fallon ride, they said, I want to smell pizza. And, and I'm like, okay, that, that's what he's opening with. He wants to smell pizza. But like for him, that was a big deal. You know, we're racing through New York, which is, you know, pizza capital of the world, in my opinion. Um, apologies to Chicago. 
Uh, and uh, but for him, that was something that he associated with a theme park experience. He wanted to smell things. And uh, Disney is famous, especially among uh, fan circles, for the device they have that, I don't know if it's called that anymore, but it used to be called the Smellitzer, where they would develop scents. You know, everyone talks about the, uh, um, the uh, what is it, the orange, uh, spelled oranges in uh, Horizon. And uh. Well, what was Horizons then? Weren't they both oranges? Uh, that I am not positive. I know, I know. At Horizons, yeah. I think it was oranges. Uh, or if it was a particularly hot day, it was your Uncle Ed. But you smell <laughs> something. Um, but yeah, it, so smells have been, uh, it, you know, just one of the senses that you can play to from the very beginning. Um, I'm very cognizant about the power of falling water, you know, which is a, an oral thing. Um, and really, that is the, the joy of telling a story in three-dimensional space, which is what theme design is. So uh, whenever possible, you're going to hit all of the senses. And, and just as proof of that, how many different lines are there of candles where they're trying to brew up classic Disney smells like the Polynesian lobby, pirate water, you know, the must and dust of the Haunted Mansion? You know, so as designers, it's absolutely something that we keep in mind while we're working. Uh, but then there are all these other smells, since that's what we seem to be on, uh, that that the guests embrace for other reasons, simply because it's, it is the strongest memory trigger there is. So it really shouldn't be surprising that people want to bottle that in some way and take it home. You know, I have the Polynesian lobby candle, you know, in the other room, and I love it. Um, and uh, the same thing goes for sound, uh, whether it's ambient sound, the actual produced soundtrack, live music, whatever it happens to be. And the proof of that was, you know, I grew up literally taking a portable tape recorder into the attraction so that I could take them and relive them at home through sound. And now, of course, it, like all of the soundtracks live on the Internet uh, there, there have been wonderful CD collections released of, of theme park soundtracks. So yeah, it, it definitely goes well beyond the visual and that you can trace directly back to Walt knowing from the beginning that this was going to be a three-dimensional immersive experience because that was his goal from day one. He wanted to get rid of the movie screen and put his audience into the story. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you talked a little bit there about how important attraction design is what direction do you see theme park design going in the future and like do you think there are any unique challenges right now to theme park design here's the thing especially now in the middle of of covid uh i'm of the opinion that ultimately things are not going to change very much because the same things are always going to be important to people uh, years ago, a lot of us said, okay, there's going to be a demand for more interactivity. Guests are no longer content to be passive observers. They want to be participants. I think that's true up to an extent, um, and that could be a generational thing. I'm more than happy to just get in a boat on pirates and enjoy it or climb into a doom buggy in the Haunted Mansion and enjoy it. Uh, nothing is more obnoxious uh, from a design standpoint than being in a meeting and having someone get really overzealous and, and go, it, the guests are training for the big mission, or you know, there's this top secret facility, but today we're having an open house. 
you know, it, it's like, no, it, it's like sometimes just keep it simple, let people enjoy it. My hope for the future is that the answer is all of the above, meaning we will have more participatory experiences, but it's also okay to have a slow, gentle, presentational experience that just lets you be and lets you enjoy it. Uh, and, and I think the same thing is true um, for how we approach lands. Uh, you know, Universal, I think, kicked off the current trend of the single uh, IP immersive land, which kind of begat Cars Land and Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And, you know, a lot of the things that we're seeing now, two versions of it with Harry Potter. Um, but I believe that in the future, uh, we'll get to a point where you start seeing more of the multi-flavor lands uh, like you got with Fantasyland, Adventureland, Frontierland, where you'll have one overriding uh, theme and flavor for sure, but different shadings within that uh, umbrella uh, that that allows you uh, to experience more than one kind of story. And I think that's going to be important uh, because not every every, uh, piece of intellectual property can sustain can sustain a whole land. It just can't. It's not possible. You know, I grew up loving Burt Reynolds, but I'm not you know, <laughs> dying to have the the first immersive land based on the Smokey and the Bandit shared universe. <laughs> not too bad of an idea. <laughs> exactly. It's like you know, no one's lining up for the Aristocats land, but I wouldn't <laughs> mind seeing a scene in a ride. You know, where where they're you know jamming out and, and doing one of the numbers from the movie. So I, I do hope that we get to a point. Uh, going into the future here where the answer is all of the above, where everything that we've learned over decades now of theme design is allowed to be part of the whole, you know, so that you can get the full spectrum of what themed entertainment can be, whether it's a ride, a live show, a parade, a nighttime spectacular, uh, a roller coaster. I've uh, I've done roller coasters that that have legit, three-act stories, you'll see one when Beijing opens, and it's a steel coaster. But we were able to find just the right fit. And that's really the joy of doing this, is is trying to find clever ways to, to take things up a level or two. Now, if you can find an Aristocat ride with Buford T. Justice in it, there, I think, my friend, is your money. Uh, so that was just, uh... accepted, Bill. <laughs> we are a few short years away from one multinational conglomerate controlling everything. Because uh, I, I remember, you know, when when Bob Iger was on his buying spree, I actually said at one point, "I'm like, man, all this guy's got to do is buy Batman and Seinfeld, and I don't have to work anywhere else for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's all here." So, can you can you tell us that roller coaster in Beijing? Are you allowed to tell us what the theme of that is? It's in Transformers Metro Base. Okay. Awesome. And that all that's been announced. Gotcha. Uh, I don't know if the name of it has been announced, which I'm very proud of. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you uh, wait for that. But yeah, it's the roller coaster that's in Transformers Metro Base. Awesome. I wanted to swing back around to Haunted Mansion because I think this is important. You were involved in many of the refurbishments that went on over there yes. during the years. Um, what was the one in 2001? I think it was. The earliest one was when we added uh, the interactive, there's that word again, a tombstone, uh, which we ultimately created to be a tribute to Madame Leota. And uh, the funny thing is, you know, people say, oh, what, you know, what did you have the most fun with or what are you most proud of? 
in your career. And uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of cool things. I've been very fortunate, but I am so jazzed <laughs> to, to know that I have an epitaph in the Haunted Mansion. And the only thing more exciting than that is being able to finally salute uh, Leota Tombs, who had somehow been overlooked uh, with, with the epitaphs. Uh, so that was a huge thrill. Uh, and then I was the show writer for the 2007 enhancement where we added the uh, the endless staircase and uh, some audio effects to the stretch room. Uh, uh, I, I remember being in a meeting and, and saying, I want to hear the wood groan and just hear the thing contorting as it moves. And, and to this day, I get a kick out of that. And then, you know, we knew we wanted to have uh, kind of ghostly eyes watching you uh, during the kind of dark transitional space between the uh, the endless corridor and the corridor of doors. And I said, well, it's got to be the wallpaper. The wallpaper needs to be blinking and watching us. And then as you segue into the light, I mean, if you've ridden the ride before, you know what it is. But it, yes. if, you, if you go on it for the first time and have no idea, you just see these spooky looking eyes watching you and blinking. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, it's the wallpaper. To this day, I get the biggest kick out of that. And it's, you know, it's just a small little thing. But uh, after uh, writing the book, uh, just to have had the opportunity to do anything uh, that lives on in the Haunted Mansion is, you know, it's like, OK, I, I can I can retire now. I can't afford to. But <laughs> emotionally, I'd be ready. You know, that tombstone is like genius because it's it's right. It, the doors close and all the families are standing there. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're all kind of looking at themselves like, Oh, wait, wait a minute. Is this, are these eyes opening? And you're all, they're all standing there. And I think that gives people so much joy and it's placed right at the perfect spot. And it's um, not always joy. And that's part of the fun. Cause I get a kick and maybe it's cause I'm a little sadistic. I get a kick out of watching a kid say, dad, it blinked. The eyes moved. And then I told you to stop lying. Cause I've seen, <laughs> it happen, I've seen arguments and it tickles me to death. Um, but the funny thing is, I think we landed on just the right amount of uh, movement and interactivity because we looked at everything. There was one point where it was there was a full statue like you would see in, in one of the great New Orleans cemeteries and it moved. There was one point where I said, oh, it should be a freshly dug grave and we, we could have a little thing in the ground that almost disturbs the soil and makes it look like it's traveling from the foot of the coffin up to the headstone. Then something happens in the headstone, almost as though you can see the spirit moving from the body into the tombstone. But ultimately we wound up with uh, the simple eye and facial effects that we have. And that was the, the perfect way to go because it doesn't detract, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's so subtle that it creates the effect that you're talking about. So you saw the issue that Mark and Claude had, when you're trying to find that healthy balance between spooky and funny. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, you know, that that's interesting too, because that happened even on the, the 2007 enhancement with the, uh, the endless staircase, because again, I'm a huge ghost story fan, horror films. Uh, Stephen King has had a huge influence on me. And from having done the book, I was well aware of the fact that, uh, grim grinning ghosts is a through line in throughout the entire attraction, but in a different arrangement. So you get the org, the funeral dirge in the beginning, the waltz in the ballroom, the jazzy version in the graveyard jamboree. So I remember being in a meeting and saying, Oh, and on the endless staircase on one of the upside down stairs, 
we can have like a, a game of jacks going on with the ball bouncing and little jacks. And we can hear like two little girls doing a nursery rhyme version of it. And there was just dead silence in the room. And I'm like, what? And they're like, I don't think we're going to add dead children to a Disney attraction. <laughs> and I was just so mortified because I realized like that is the implication. <laughs> so the, the, the endless staircase, uh, um, one one of the things that I always saw there, but I don't I don't remember reading anything about it was was there any influence from uh, like the the M C Escher painting? Oh, and, yeah, and... absolutely. Yeah, okay. that, that, okay. that was one of the pieces of visual inspiration that was in the conference room because uh, yeah. that was something uh, that that came from Tom Fitzgerald. Actually, he was uh, our lead creative executive at the time, and he said, "Well, whatever we do, I, it's got to be architectural." You know, I want it to be part of the house, which was really a way of saying it's not going to be a media effect or a light trick. We want to build more house, which was absolutely the right call, because Lord knows we we have enough media all over the place. Um, But and, and the other thing that I love about it is it feels like it's always been there. It doesn't feel like mm-hmm. you know, I leave the music room. I'm like, oh, what's this? You know, it it, it because it has that organic architectural quality to it it feels very natural and like it had been there from day one yeah it is a beautiful transition i i I agree completely with that um now now that that kind of brings me to a question that we were going to ask about dark rides um because you know you look at all of the classic dark rides like pirates it's almost entirely made up of animatronics and different things like that. You look at a lot of the dark rides. Now you look at, for example, Mickey's runaway uh, uh, railway, which just opened up earlier this year. And everything is almost projection. Now you've got some animatronics as part of it, but a lot of animatron or a lot of that is gone and it's and it's more projection than anything else. Do you think that trend is going to continue or do you think that eventually we'll kind of find a balance with those two things? I think it's like the force where every generation has to find its own balance in some way. Uh, it's certainly something we dealt with uh, when I was at Universal Creative when there was literally a backlash uh, in a way against, you know, screen-based, media-based theme park attractions. Um, And to me, it illustrates what I call one of the Jeff Goldblum principles, which is just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. You know, and uh, I I think what will ultimately happen is that uh, media, like audio-animatronic figures or, uh, you know, whatever, you take your pick, whatever tool in the toolbox uh, ultimately, it's going to come down to the show and what is the best tool to use to tell that story. And I think ultimately there will be balance. Um, unfortunately, like with any other part of entertainment or really any other part of the world, um, costs have escalated significantly. And sometimes uh, media is a more cost effective way to deliver a great experience. But what I can tell you is. I have never been in a meeting where the creative team has been like, let's, let's screw the audience. It, you know, it's like, it, it's always the intention to give people the best possible experience using the best tools to tell that story. Um, I got kind of a gotcha question during the press event for Jimmy Fallon, where uh, somebody tried to kind of catch me off guard with the, the, the media question. And I used Fallon as a great example. We knew we were going to, 
do something based around Jimmy Fallon and The Tonight Show, which is live television every night. It's already a media-based experience. As you can imagine, we're not going to build Manhattan right here in the in in a in a soundstage here at Universal. So media was the best way to bring the world of the Tonight Show to life. Uh, then, on the other hand, you'll have something like the Pirates of the Caribbean at Shanghai, which I, I haven't seen, but by all accounts and by anyone who can pull it up on YouTube, is spectacular. And it has, I think, three figures in it versus the dozens of the original Pirates attraction. They're both spectacular, and yet one has dozens of animatronic figures and one has three, but makes up for it in other ways. So I think that that's what you're going to see in the future is things ultimately will come into balance. Uh, but hopefully the one uh, consistent element is it's a great story and a great experience. And that creative team use the best, most appropriate tools in the toolbox to create that experience. Let me ask you, have you been on Rise of the Resistance yet? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, two days ago, as a matter of fact. Really? Yeah. Uh to me, that ride is probably one of my favorite rides now in Walt Disney World. And it's it's kind of what you just said is it's a, it's a really good balance of uh, like just the old fashioned Disney dark ride. Uh, they add screens when they have to. Right. But it is just it is just a wonderful, wonderful attraction. I just I just love it. I and adore it. It's, it's funny because it's also, I think the holy grail in some ways in terms of what a lot of us have uh, long aspired to do in that it's the only attraction I know of that tells a story in movements, you know, and every piece is important to the overall execution and enjoyment of that story. And, uh, and it, you know, I used to, um, I was working on a project once where I mentored under Tony Baxter and uh, he was talking about uh, his dream of one day doing what he referred to as a feature length attraction, which would take that to the next level and potentially be uh, ours. But uh, uh, Rise of the Resistance, to me, is uh, feels like a step in that direction. Like, okay, well, what's next? How can we make this even longer? You, you'll see that probably with the Star Wars Hotel, where, yeah. where your adventure doesn't have to end in the park. Um, but that was what was most impressive to me about Rise was just you're talking every tool in the toolbox. I love the fact that that the queue uh, takes you inside, then outside again, and then back in the ship. Uh, and it's all meant to keep you somewhat off guard and create that reality. Because just going in and then out again sort of goes against the norm of what you kind of expect from a, a, a queue in a theme park. But it's all motivated. I've left the hidden base. I'm outside again because that's where the shuttle is and that's where Poe's X-Wing is. So it's all part of the story. But in terms of, uh, of you know, firing all of your senses, it's doing that too. Uh, and it's just upping the ante and escalating the action. Yeah. So you, you were involved a little bit with a Great Movie Ride. And now you, you were... Um... Also, you you now saw uh, Rise of the Resistance. Can you confirm whether or not uh, there's a longstanding, well, not longstanding, but a rumor that some of the animatronics that were on Great Movie Ride, specifically um, uh, the uh, uh, scene from Aliens with Sigourney Reaver, was turned into, um, what's his name? Why can't I think of his name? With a gun. 
There are the, a lot of guns in Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 stor- the guy dressed up as a stormtrooper. Um, oh, Finn? Yeah, Finn. Yeah, the the Finn. Uh, one of the Finn things was uh, was reused animatronic of Sigourney Weaver, and then the uh, animatronic that was uh, Kylo Ren was the witch. Um, I I can't confirm that. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because uh, things have been repurposed all the way back to America Sings. You know, supplying half the three quarters of the cast of Splash Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that. Uh, is it Maureen O'Hara, Maureen O'Sullivan? Jane, you know, became the redhead uh, in Pirates. That I do know, yeah. but I can't speak to Sigourney. Although sometimes when I'm watching Ghostbusters, I'm like, gosh, she looks a lot like John Boyega, doesn't she? <laughs> uh, no, I hadn't heard any of that, uh, but it, it wouldn't surprise me simply because, uh, you know, uh, as, uh, as a longtime designer myself, I'm like, what? It's free? I can have the, I, I get a witch caliber figure for free? Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it definitely makes sense, but uh, I, but I can't confirm because oddly enough, once I left Disney, they stopped including me on a lot of those uh, discussions. The so nerve. This thing. Um, I was going to ask if you had to pick one moment that you would say has been the favorite of your career thus far. What would you pick? Oh, I I, I think if I had to boil it down to one moment, it would be pitching Star Tours: The Adventures Continue to George Lucas at the ranch. It's not getting any better than that. You, know, you, you walk out of that room and you're like, I could get hit by a bus and I'm good. Fine. Uh, because just growing up uh, squarely in the middle of Generation X like I did and being a you know just raised on George Lucas and Steven Spielberg films, uh, to have the opportunity to, to go to the ranch and pitch Star Wars anything to George Lucas was, was just mind-blowing and i i still remember every moment of that i think you saw our jaws drop when you said that (laughs) because we we had a little bit of a geek out of it so on the other hand what would you say has been your biggest challenge in your career if you had a moment that you could say it was most challenging honestly uh, i think in general it's and i think this would be true of a lot of designers it's sort of after the fact when you know what something could have been and wasn't for whatever reason often financial uh and and it could be something that the the guests absolutely love to death and uh, i think for us it's the equivalent of of when you hear a film director say uh oh i I can't watch my own movies because i just see everything that's wrong i see every compromise I found that to be true to an extent as well. And it's like, and, and, and it's not like you're going to stand out front and go, yeah, but what we wanted to do. So picture that as you're going through, you know, and then uh, I would say, you know, one of the biggest challenges was, um, you know, making the decision to leave Imagineering for, for Universal, which was emotionally devastating, but it was an opportunity to to take things to the next level, to to creative director. And uh, what I learned from that is, even though I so much of my life has been inspired by, driven by, directed by Walt Disney, what what I realized in that moment was, you have to live for you, and 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 what's best for you, and the stories that you get to tell. And it was kind of in that moment that as, as, 
as tough as it was, as big a challenge as it was to break that emotional connection, it, it was the absolute best thing for my art, my, my career, and, uh, and my own growth. Nice. So you wrote uh, a, another book that is very interesting, and it's called uh, The Disney Mountains, Imagineering at its Peak. See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes. Yeah. That had to be rewarding. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, what was interesting about that was uh, that was an opportunity to cover a number of classic attractions that weren't necessarily going to sustain a whole book, but they they batched together nicely under the mountains umbrella. Simply because, as it happened, at some point Disney saw that they had a a nice theme going, and then consciously played into it. So the cool thing about that was just the sheer diversity of subject matter, the people you got to talk to. And because it was uh, written as Everest was being built and finished and opened, I got to crawl through every nook and cranny of Everest and it was terrifying, you know, being up that high. But I got to crawl up in the Matterhorn and see the basketball hoop and and all that stuff. Uh, And uh, and that it was that was just really an amazing experience getting to literally hike the mountain range, you know, while while working on that book. Wow, that's awesome. Now, now, um, you, you've talked a lot about your the ideas that have have gone places. Uh, have, have have you ever had? Well, I'm sure you've had ideas that people have said no to from time to time. But what one do you think is just the absolute best? that never has seen the light of day. I can't go into detail, but the version of star Wars land that we had mind blowing. Yeah. Absolutely oh, mind blowing grown men and women would have wept. <laughs> and they wept as it was. Yeah. But without going into uh, the details, which I, you know, even many years later, I can't do. Sure. Uh, absolutely stunning stunning stuff and i'm not talking about me i'm talking about the whole team you know, yeah just the whole yeah. thing was was absolutely amazing and to get to play in that sandbox you know i got a nice taste of it with star tours the adventures continue but oof, working on that land was was one of the great joys of my life uh, so was how, that? Do you, how do you overcome right. that disappointment how do you get over that you just think it's the, a brilliant idea and it's going to bring in millions. And they say, now, how do you get over that? I found bourbon helps. <laughs> uh, no, honestly, it's a, it's, it's a mindset that, that you have to build up that it's, it's just the, the rules of the game and the way yeah. things work out. Um, and, you know, being a student of entertainment, specifically the movie industry, like you, you honestly try to find comfort in examples uh, 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 that your favorite people, filmmakers, storytellers went through, and uh, and you just realize it's. Uh, I, I mean, it sounds really corny to say, uh, but as George Lucas says, cliches are cliches for a reason. It's because they work. Um, that showbiz, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes it it works out, and uh, and when it does, you just gotta sort of revel in that. And say that is exactly perfect example uh, with my own stuff. Um, Haunted Mansion. Uh, I I love the book, obviously, um, but it was written in a very short amount of time in order to come out with the movie back then. 
And then I did have the opportunity to revisit it twice in further editions. But ultimately, I didn't have the time to do the research and interviews to do the thorough biography that I wanted to do. Whereas with Pirates, I had a little more time. And even though there were some restrictions in terms of real estate, page numbers and things of that nature, I had enough time to do the internet, uh, to do the interviews and research to where when, when I was done with that book, I was able to truly say to myself, I feel like I told Pirate's story. I'm happy with that. I don't think I can top that. Mansion never quite got there simply because of the time involved. So for me, that was a perfect example of, yeah, I love them both, but this one feels more comprehensive and complete than this one. There you go. Yep. The, there it is. There's the, there's the book. Yeah. yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean from the Magic Kingdom to the movies. Um, you were, I don't want to keep you too much longer, Jason. I know you got a lot going on, but um Keeping me away from the kids is a good thing. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. So another hour then. We got another hour? <laughs> the door is locked. They can't get in. Okay. Uh, you, you were you were involved in the refurbishment of Pirates attraction, right? With yeah, Red. Yeah. yeah a, a little bit. I did minor things here and there. But yeah. yeah. But I was around for that and, and, and a small part of it. Was there a feeling of like, we don't know about it. We're, we're touching a classic here, you know? Uh, we're taking things out and, you know, we're putting things in, whether it be because of politically correct reasons or, or whatever it is. Um, was that a feeling that you guys had? Or was a little pressure there? Yeah, well, because it's one of the crown jewels, you know, and I got to experience that more so with Haunted Mansion, although we felt safer with that one because we were literally just removing a dark spot and a big rubber spider that cost about two ninety nine at Eckerd's. Um, you know, so there was less risk, but with pirates, uh, specifically, uh, when we added, uh, the captain Jack and Barbosa figures and, and added the movie elements, you know, th- there was definitely some risk with that, but, uh, what the genius of what the team did, and this had nothing to do with me, obviously, but, uh, Kathy Rogers was our show producer and the genius was they made the conscious decision to make it additive. I think the the secret to the Pirates Enhancement, specifically as it relates to the films, is that it was additive. They consciously chose to avoid changing things so much as adding things. So the Captain Jack editions in particular are, for the most part, pretty subtle. I would say the biggest change would be taking out the, the Captain of the Wicked Wench and replacing him with Barbosa. That's a change. But at the same time, he's still delivering a lot of the same dialogue and serving the same function. So uh, I really do think that that was why it was so widely accepted, because it was additive versus subtractive or altering things. Now, other elements that have changed have been a little bit more controversial, you know, starting in the 90s with uh, the chase scene, where they uh, replaced one of the seven deadly sins with, with another. <laughs> They're like, all right, we'll swap out lust and put in gluttony. Um, and that really didn't cause too many waves. But I will say, and I wrote about this in the book, um, Exitensio got a little irritated about it. And that's where the quote comes from. He goes, it's called Pirates of the Caribbean, not Boy Scouts of the Caribbean. <laughs> um, yeah. But that was when you started to see a little bit of a generational shift and yeah. uh and you're seeing it in uh, obviously in, in a lot of pop culture 
now. And uh, pirates was uh, a little bit of a dicey subject even then to the point where uh, X told me the story about when they mocked up the auction scene on a soundstage at the studio, even Walt was a little bit sheepish, like, well, uh, th- this is okay, R- right, guys? I mean, this is fine. <laughs> so I, I think even in, in 1966, going into 67, they, they knew that they were walking the line with, uh, with the subject matter. Well, that, that which is why that they kind of wanted a, uh, a an uppity song to go with it, you know, to try to, <laughs> exactly. you know, <laughs> try to, to soften try to, a little bit. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And that was that was X, and uh, yep. you know, he very famously tells the story about how Walt stopped by his desk at the studio one day, and he said, "You're going to wed, and you're going to write the pirate ride." And X was like, "What? What just happened?" <laughs> you know, it's like because I'm not a writer. I know nothing about pirates, uh, but uh, you know the that's the way it happened. He would just handpick these folks from the studio and uh, and say, "You're you're going to go to wed and you're going to like it." He said that a couple of times. You're going to like it, <laughs> and of course they all did. So we talked a little bit earlier about you switching over to Universal Creative, and we listed some of the rides. Is there anything else you want to tell us about your time with Universal Creative? Well, really, uh, my big thing from, from my time there is Universal Beijing, you know, because I literally, I was the creative director from what we call Blue Sky into this schematic phase. So the, the, the majority of the life of the project without actually going there to build it, because I'm a, I'm a conceptual creative director. I'm not the person you want in the boots and the hard hat saying, make it more blue. Um, but for me, that's the kind of assignment that you, you dream of you know, to, to be able to have a park that you were able to really help shape and mold and, and touch. And it gave me the opportunity to, to generate two lands from scratch uh, that just absolutely did not exist in, in any way, shape or form. Uh, and it also gave me the opportunity to do it all, you know, a big blockbuster dark ride in Jurassic World, steel coasters, family round rides, family boat rides that are a little bit more gentle, like we were talking and tell a story. So every part of the theme park experience I got to play with in some form or fashion with Universal Beijing. And then uh, we had a lot of great stuff cooking for Epic Universe. So hopefully things will turn around and come back and, uh, and we'll get that back on, back on the front burner. You did say that you have some hopeful hopeful things coming up in the near future and you can't really share yet but is there anything you can share that you're working on? Well, Where? I'm uh, I'm working on something for a company affiliated with uh, an American entertainment figure that's probably second only to Walt Disney in terms of how beloved she is. Uh, so I'll I'll let let you think about that. Um, so I'm doing some concept work uh, for them. And uh, then there's, uh, I'm doing a lot of work with Storyland Studios out of California. uh, And uh, I'm having an absolute blast working with them. There's a lot of uh, Imagineering and Universal alumni that work there, uh, headed up by Mel McGowan and Peter McGowan. uh, And they've just uh, assembled really the Avengers of of the theme park industry and, and all just very good, decent people. Uh, so it's been an absolute joy working with them. And uh, again, not being able to go into any detail, but what I have found with Storyland is 
a spirit that strikes me as, as what it had to have been like in the early days of WED, uh, not only in terms of the, the people and how they interact with each other, but some of the, the kinds of things that they're involved with. Uh, and then the other exciting thing is uh, they're involved with a lot of things that I would not have had an opportunity to do uh, at either Disney or Universal uh, that could really positively impact people's lives, which is where Walt was going toward the end of his life and career. Urban planning, you know, how people live, how people recreate. Uh, so that, I think, for me, is the most exciting thing to come in the future, specifically with Storyland. Uh, and then I am also working on a, a, a new book called Pirates of the Caribbean, Imagineering a Disney Classic for Theme Park Press. Uh, you know, the other book's been out of print for quite a while, and I've had a lot of requests over the years. So this will be uh, a retelling of, of the Pirates history that's colored a little bit by my own experiences with the franchise, including spending some time on the film sets and things like that. So I think that'll be exciting. And then I'm going to follow that up with uh, a memoir slash how-to book uh, that is tentatively titled Adventures in the Theme Trade from the Dawn of Hollywood East to the Twilight of the Imagineers. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about that, too, because uh, I'm not done yet, but, uh, but I, I do think I've amassed uh, uh, enough anecdotes to keep people entertained. But more to the point, uh, after years and years of, of working with younger people and speaking to interns and talking at colleges and high schools, uh, it, it occurs to me that, that I think I do have a, a few things to say that could be helpful uh, for folks who are hoping to get into the business, uh, especially young people. So uh, that, that's a small sample of the things that are on my plate currently. So if you oh, could that's... give one suggestion to somebody wanting to get into the field, what would you tell them? I think the single biggest thing is try to match up something you're good at and can do with your passion. And what I mean by that is if I had a nickel and a lot of my colleagues will say the same thing for every person that said, well, I'm just, I'm an idea person. I got a lot of good ideas. It's like, oh, okay. But you have to have a way of conveying those ideas, communicating those ideas, sharing that vision, whether it's writing graphic design, painting, sketching, you know, doesn't matter, I, you know, construction workers, you know, like, and that was the thing we always said at Imagineering. Imagineering is made up of 140 something different disciplines. So almost any job you could have in the so-called real world has some kind of counterpart at Imagineering. So I always tell people, try to find something you're good at. For me, it was writing uh, and match it up with your passion, which for me was theme park design, film and television and put them together if, if you can. And uh, oftentimes you can do that. And then the other big thing I tell people is physically get yourself to a place where the dream can come true. And we've already established that Cleveland is the Versailles of the Midwest. <laughs> I remember the that well. Capital of the world. Um, so uh, I went somewhere at a very early age where it was possible for my dreams to come true. And then once you're there, that's when you throw everything at the wall to see what will stick and try to make your own magic. Because the one thing I think that young people sometimes tend to think is, you know, they're just waiting for someone to knock on the door and say, we're ready for you. Doesn't work that way. You got to go out and get it. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's very competitive. A lot of people want to do it. 
Uh, it's hard. You know, so it's kind of like Tom Hanks said about baseball, you know, the hard is what makes it great. If it was easy, everyone would do it. You know, it's, and that's true of, of so much of entertainment. So get yourself someplace where it's even possible to make a dream come true. Then do everything in your power to make your own magic, all based on hopefully a happy alignment between what you're passionate about and what you're good at. That's amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Uh, I think there's something to say about what you guys do as Imagineers, um, especially Disney and, of course, even over there in Universal, um, is that anybody can you know, make a, a thrill ride. Anybody can build a roller coaster. Well, not anybody, but you know, uh, any amusement park. It's the stories that matter. You know, it's the characters, the stories, and. How do you mention uh, characters? Because one of the Walt anecdotes I always share, and this is super important, uh, and it it's actually become more uh, important now in a world that's driven by IP. But there was a point where Walt was in a meeting with. Uh, with, with with his team. I think there were some imagine, Imagineers in there, but I think it was primarily an operational meeting with some of the folks from Disneyland and they were going over uh, some of the uh, holiday offerings and and someone brought up the, the costume characters and, uh, and somebody else went, yeah, 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 like dismissing it as though it wasn't important. And Walt said, now hold on just a second. Other people can keep their parks clean they can do a better job, you know, sweeping the streets and tending to the flower beds and making everything neat and pretty like we do. They can come up with great rides that are thrilling and fun. But the one thing they can't do, the one thing that will always be unique to our park is those costume care is those characters. So don't ever dismiss that again. And now I think you can broaden that anecdote to include uh, these individual companies IP because that is something that's unique to each of these companies, whether it's homegrown or licensed, uh, and it does become the differentiator. Uh, a similar story, uh, I got my wires crossed a little bit. This was about a Christmas offering, uh, and somebody from finance was arguing that Disneyland didn't need to spend the money on this additional Christmas offering because the crowds were going to come anyway. And Walt stopped that meeting, Cole, and said, hold on. We always have to keep giving them a little more because if they ever stop coming, it's going to cost us 10 times that much to get them back. You always have to give them a little more. I reproduce that anecdote verbatim from the Bob Thomas biography in my written pitch for that very first Christmas show at Epcot. And I like to think that, that Walt's words and, and that spirit were, were part of what sold it for us because we didn't need to do it. People were going to come anyway. There's plenty of Christmas stuff at Epcot, but that that spirit is part of what got us to do it. And to me, those two anecdotes are are part of what guide my approach even today in terms of what we need to offer people at these destinations. Yeah, and boy, you 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 said it uh, really well there when you said that uh, now even more so. Um, you know, you see some of the stuff that is going on with the theme parks and I don't know, part of me wonders if they've, they, if they've forgotten that part of the message and, and that part of the, 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 uh, the lesson. Yeah. And it's interesting too, especially, well, as it relates to the point about the characters and the IP, 
Uh, I like to think, you know, we talked about balance earlier. I like to think that at some point in the future, we might get a shot at some original storytelling again, uh, because that's how we got the Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Thunder Mountain Railroad. Um, But so much of entertainment now is driven by IP and it starts in film. uh, And you're seeing, you know, you're you're not going to see a, a, a mid-budget romantic comedy in theaters anymore, you know, or or a, a mid-budget adult drama. They're all going to Netflix. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that Adam Sandler and Will Smith, two giant stars, by the way, mm-hmm. are now so closely aligned with Netflix. And it's because mm-hmm. the industry has now squeezed out their specialty, which were mid-range comedies. Uh, and Will Smith obviously uh, has done his share of blockbusters, but now it's all of the blockbusters are based on known quantities, you know, with the capes and the lightsabers. And it's like uh, the, the, these uh, corporations feel more comfortable rolling the dice uh, on a big ticket item uh, if it's got a built in audience. And, and we all get it. It, it makes perfect business sense, but it, it just makes it interesting to see how this ripple effect is going to uh, play out uh, across the business, you know, in film and television and streaming and in, in the theme parks, because, uh, you know, a lot of our attractions are not cheap dates these days. So a, a company is going to be much more likely to, to roll the dice on a Guardians of the Galaxy or a Harry Potter or, or something that they know the audience knows and loves, you know, and it's interesting how you're seeing it in every facet of entertainment. And nowhere are you seeing that more than at Epcot with all the, br- absolutely with all the branded content they're bringing in there, which I'm not against, but you know, it, I don't think, like you said, I, it's, it's going to be a while before, you know, uh, the, the creatives are able to come up with something more original. Well, and it's, in some cases, it's like, you, you know, you are responding to the, the changing tastes of the audience. So, you know, when Epcot was in uh, its initial development, you weren't terribly far removed from the heyday of the world's fairs. That was still a thing. That's not really a thing societally anymore. So ultimately, that's going to make its way down to a park that's rooted in that, like Epcot. But uh, seeing what they've done so far and uh, seeing some of the plans in the preview center of of what they plan to do, um, I do think they're being very thoughtful and smart and it's got a weird word to use, but considerate of of what Epcot is and wants to be. And now they're evolving it in a way where they're still doing that, but using characters that people know and love. And they're, they're just going to deploy them a little differently. I remember one time I was in a, a presentation with Tony Baxter where he did a brilliant exercise of how you would handle Pocahontas in each one of the four Walt Disney World theme parks. And he said, well, you could do a traditional dark ride in Frontierland at the Magic Kingdom. Epcot at the American Adventure, you, you would do an examination of the historical Pocahontas in that time period and Native Americans. Animal Kingdom, you would do what they did, which is you you take the natural connection between Pocahontas and her forest friends. uh, And then at the studios, you would take a legit behind the scenes look at how the animated film was created. And after, you know, all of us just sat there kind of slack jawed, like, oh my gosh. So these characters and stories are very pliable. It's not difficult to 
mold them into something that would be appropriate at any one of the four parks or at Disneyland or, or wherever. And that's where part of the art is now so that these things are done thoughtfully and artfully and don't feel like some kind of cash in, you know, and when it's done right, you know, like frozen ever after, uh, you know, you have a ride that you can't even get on because it's so popular, you know, so the, the that connection was made in, in an appropriate way. This, uh, this is, been incredible you know i feel like uh uh you know i've i've gotten lessons in uh you know theme park world and, and behind the scenes stuff uh you know so uh you know i know i i can't say thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us and and uh share all of the things that you you shared tonight well no it was a, a pleasure and uh i i obviously love sharing that passion i've been very very blessed with what I've been able to do and some of the people that I've been able to collaborate with and learn from. And uh, one of the things that we know internally in some of these big companies is uh, our art, the art of theme design is steeped in institutional knowledge and the oral tradition. Things are passed on literally orally and and by uh, mentors and mentees. And you know, I, I could name every single person that I've learned from that shaped who I am and how I do what I do. So to me, opportunities like this are are just one more way of, of, of trying to get some of that knowledge out there, you know, so that that anybody who might be aspiring to do it might hear this and say, oh, if that moron from Cleveland can do it, I have a shot, <laughs> you know, because you really do think of it that way. It's like, I just say, I'm just this kid from, from Cleveland and Exitensio knew who I was and called me on my cell phone. Yeah. Once knew me and felt comfortable enough to read me the riot act. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, look, look at Bill. He's a moron from Cincinnati. He's got a podcast now. I was going to say a Cincinnati yeah. guy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if a Cincinnati guy could do this. You're not in prison. Uh-huh. Yet. Like, yeah. Your, your shirt is not stained with skyline chili, which I find shocking. Frankly. It's, it's down here. It's, okay. uh, it's okay. just out of, it's just out of camera. That's why he's a podcaster. He's <laughs> Jason, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been an absolute treasure trove of information. We appreciate you taking this time out to uh, to sit with us and talk Disney. No, it's uh, my pleasure, and it's uh, I, I just love, uh, especially in the the internet age. Now I sound like I'm 85 years old, but uh, and and podcasting and all of these things that there, there's just so many diverse ways to share fandom and and just bring people together and connect over something that so many people so obviously love you've been listening to ear bnb podcast so that we don't find your lack of support disturbing make sure you like share and subscribe on social media